and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. Sarah Bartnika is off this week. So I don't know if you know this website, World in Data, but it's one of my favorite websites. They just have charts and data for almost any topic you can imagine. And there's a really fascinating chart on there that shows global nuclear power generation by year since the 1950s. And if you look at the chart, what you see is hockey stick growth from the mid-1960s all the way through the mid-1990s, and then nothing. Global nuclear power output grew from zero to around 2,600 terawatts per hour by the mid-1990s, and then flatlined for 20 years. We just weren't building new nuclear. But that's starting to change. Around the world, new nuclear projects are are starting up and plants that were scheduled for shutdown are being refurbished to last for decades more. And one of the places at the forefront of this nuclear renaissance is right here in Ontario. In this province, we already produce an outsized share of the world's nuclear energy, around 3.7% of the global total, which puts the province ahead of entire countries like Germany and the UK. And in the last couple of years, the province has announced plans to increase that dramatically with new reactors and refurbishments at its plants in Bruce County, Darlington, and Pickering. And we recently had the chance to tour the Pickering facility and see firsthand the work that's going on there. Uh, It was a fascinating experience and one that I highly recommend if you ever get the chance to do it. And afterward, we sat down with Riley Found, who's a senior manager of projects for new nuclear growth at Ontario Power Generation, to talk about what's going on with nuclear in the province. Now, unfortunately, I messed up the audio for that interview, but Riley has uh, generously joined us again today to remotely record an interview, which will work this time. And uh, he's here to talk to us again about what's driving Ontario's nuclear renaissance and uh, what's next for the industry. So Riley, thanks so much for coming on Free Lunch. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Join us again, I should say, because (laughs) the second go around, but uh, we'll get it right this time. So why don't we just start off with a very uh, basic question about nuclear's role in the energy supply in Ontario. Uh, Can you just give us sort of a lay of the land of how much nuclear contributes to our energy supply and where that power is being generated? Sure. So uh, nuclear in Ontario uh, provides over 60% of Ontario's electricity on a daily basis. And that comes from four uh, nuclear stations in Ontario, uh, Darlington Nuclear Generating Station, uh, Pickering, and then at the Bruce Power site, there's actually two uh, nuclear stations, uh, Bruce A and Bruce B. And between those four stations, there's 18 uh, reactors, uh, all can-do technology. Some of those reactors right now are currently under refurbishment, uh, but when they're all online and running, there's 18 operable uh, candy reactors in Ontario. And those stations, those reactors, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were all built quite a while ago, right? This, these, are, these have been around for a couple decades now. When, when, what's the history of that? Sure. So the uh, the Pickering station, Pickering A, is the, uh, the oldest operating station right now. Uh, built in the 70s. 
um, and then Bruce and Darlington uh, through the 80s. And all of those reactors are either nearing uh, half-life or end-of-life at this point. So they've been operating uh, robustly for, for many decades, and now they're either, uh, as I said, at the end of life or, or ready for refurbishing or currently under refurbishment for their midlife uh, refurbishment. So I, I want to talk about the refurbishment uh, a little bit later, but before we do that, I guess I'm, I'm curious about why uh, there's suddenly been an uptick in interest in nuclear in your view, because for a long time, the idea of you know, building a new nuclear plant or even spending all the time and money that we are now to refurbish a plant would have been unthinkable. Uh, and now it seems to be a fairly widely shared view that that's the direction that we should go in. Uh, why do you think nuclear has suddenly uh, experienced a bit of a renaissance in Ontario? So there's, there's a few reasons there. Um, and the first one we'll start with is uh, electrification. And we look at our projected uh, requirements to meet electrification demands uh, by 2050. Um, we're looking at uh, potentially doubling the entire uh, electricity grid uh, in Ontario. Uh, the IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator, released a Pathways to Decarbonization Report in December of 2022 that illustrates uh, potentially up to 18,000 megawatts of new nuclear on top of our operating um, capacity may be required. And, and this starts to put into scale how much electricity is needed for electrification. And we look at electrifying transportation, home heating, industrial, uh, rail, et cetera. Um, we need mass amounts of electricity. And that's what nuclear is great for, providing steady, baseload clean electricity. And when you look at uh, the profile of Ontario, uh, OPG actually released uh, a report earlier this year that talks about um, how much hydro capacity may be left in Ontario. And there's somewhere between three and 4,000 megawatts of hydro uh, that's potential. That still leaves a major gap in, in the baseload uh, generation needed for electrification. And again, that's where nuclear plays a great role. So um, that's one piece of it. Two, uh, the war in Ukraine has really put an emphasis on energy security. And nuclear is a great uh, form of electricity that can provide energy security to uh, a country. And here in Canada, uh, we uh, have the benefit of having the province of Saskatchewan, which is the world's second largest producer of uranium. So we have a complete indigenous supply of nuclear fuel here in Canada, and we operate uh, uh, the CANDU reactors for many, many decades safely and, and reliably. And so that has positioned nuclear to be a great option going forward. Um, and I know you said you want to talk about refurb a bit, but um, when you talk about maybe the hesitations or why there has been uh, not much new build in the last few decades, the refurbishments both at, at Darlington and Bruce Power are proving that large-scale nuclear projects can be done uh, on time and on budget. And so even at, uh, at Darlington, uh, we're having great successes, and I, and I know Bruce is as well. Um, and that's positioning nuclear to be uh, considered again, and, and we're seeing that. We're seeing strong signals from all levels of government here in Canada in support of nuclear. And uh, I, you know, OPG is a strong track record of safe and reliable operations, and so it should really be considered. Now, the piece here that I, I just want to make sure I highlight is that it's not nuclear and nothing else. Nuclear needs to complement all 
clean energy types, there's no silver bullet option. And so we need to consider all types, but nuclear is a great source of baseload, clean, reliable energy. And when you talk about baseload energy, does that just mean that it's available all the time? So unlike, you know, maybe solar, which is not available if the sun's not out, this is reliable, can always be used? Exactly. So baseload is that that electricity that's always there 24 seven. When the the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, then renewables don't generate as much. And yet the demand on a daily basis is still there. And especially when you get into peaking seasons, uh, the winter for home heating and the summer uh, for air conditioning, uh, we all need to be able to to flip that switch and have heat or have cooling. Uh, We all rely on, on cell phones uh, you know, we need these things to be charged. And so uh, base load is your, you know, when you go to turn the light switch on, you need to make sure you've got electricity there. So the refurbishments that you were talking about at, at Darlington, and, uh, you know, I know by all accounts, the refurbishment at Darlington, which is fairly far along now, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it is uh, being completed on time and on budget, as you said. Um, and I know that in the past, there have been some challenges with finishing nuclear new like new nuclear builds uh within budgets some have gone way over and taken way longer than expected so what's changed between now and then to make uh these projects happening now more successful uh than ones that have been undertaken in the past so i think darlington um i can i can uh, unpack that one a little bit uh as you mentioned it's, it's progressing well and it's it's over halfway complete so we can certainly use that one uh, as a starting point here. And so Darlington is a $12.8 billion uh, refurbishment of the four units at Darlington. And uh, this started uh, 10 years of planning. And 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 the, the, the important part here is that if you have meticulous planning, uh, it's going to increase your chances of success. And so some of the, mm. the ideas that came through in the planning was uh, being a mega project, the project team studied other mega projects in the world, other nuclear builds, large infrastructure like airports and other stuff, and understood what went well, what didn't go well, and what can we adapt to our own project. Second, uh, we built a large scale mock up, and this mock up is a uh, non radioactive commercial one to one replica of the Darlington uh, reactor. And what this allows us to do is confirm that every single piece of tooling, Every single person who's going to work on refurb, uh, every single procedure can be tested in a non-reactor environment uh, to ensure that when we actually go in and work in the station, everything's going to fit. Everyone knows what they're doing. And uh, and it's been rehearsed many, many times. And this has allowed us to see uh, our execution of the refurbishment move along uh, on plan. And hmm. because we have four reactors that are essentially the same, um, a really key thing here is is transferring the lessons learned from the first reactor to the second, to the third, to the fourth. And so we had over 4,000 lessons learned uh, from the first unit that we applied to the second unit. And there was also some innovation involved as well. Uh, if I can describe it, you're, you're removing these large components out of the, the middle of the reactor, and there's these two uh, tubes, a calendar tube and a pressure tube. And on the first unit, these were removed uh, each individually. Uh, through innovation, we realized we could actually remove them at the same time. And so this sped up the uh, the time frame in which we needed to execute uh, the second unit. And in fact, it returned to service last month, 169 days ahead of schedule. So uh, when we talk about you know, hmm. 
products that may have been plagued in the past, we're proving uh, that this this can be done. And and the, like I said, the the lessons learned, the innovation, the practicing, the planning. The the next piece about it is an integrated project delivery model, and so that's where we have uh, all of the major uh, organizations involved integrated as one team. So we we've coined the the one team terminology at OPG, and this ensures that we all win together and we all lose together. And so everyone's committed. Everyone's following the exact same schedule. There's previous projects in the past where each organization had their own schedule that they were following. Darling's to refurb, every single organization that's, that's involved has one schedule. So everyone can see what critical path is. Everyone's working towards that. So it's been, it's been great. Uh, we're now seeing Bruce Power with their major component replacement uh, move along successfully as well. And in fact, uh, unit six, I believe, returned to the grid this morning uh, at, at Bruce Power, mm. which is their first one of their refurbishment. So here's another one that's, uh, you know, proving itself uh, that it's, it's moving along. Uh, great. Lastly, uh, in the news, we've heard about the potential of refurbishing Pickering. And so Pickering, uh, we were instructed by the Ontario government about this time last year to do a feasibility report to assess what uh, refurbishing Pickering B, not A, the B side would look like. And uh, I can tell you that OPG has completed that feasibility report. Uh, the OPG board has approved it and is now with uh, the province of Ontario for review and potentially approval uh, to refurbish uh, four units at Pickering. So just drilling down into the refurbishment a little bit and what actually goes on there. So why do these plants need to be refurbished? What needs to be replaced? Uh, is it a safety issue? Is it a, a functionality issue? What is the, what's going on there when we talk about a refurbishment of a plant? So the Kandu uh, reactors have been designed for a, a 60 year uh, life with a mid life refurbishment. So they've been operating for about 30 years now and they're at their midlife and there's major components that need to be replaced. And so if you look at the the, the guts or the core of a, of a candy reactor, you have an array of uh, pressure tubes, clander tubes, and feeder tubes, which essentially brings all the water to and from the reactor. And, and these pressure tubes are what holds the uh, uranium fuel bundles. And so um, over time, uh, as things uh, you know have been operating for as long as they have, um, much like many other uh you know, components or, or, uh, facilities in the world, they require, um, uh, maintenance. And so essentially the refurb, you're extracting the pressure tube, the clander tube, the feeder tubes, and a variety of other things, and you're replacing them with brand new components. And so this extends the life by another 30 years. Um, and so what we're seeing here though, is that it, it is a, a safety issue, uh, in fact, some of the reactors are are setting their best or if not world records for continuous operation just before they've been shut down for refurbishment. Mm. So they're running the best they ever have prior to going into refurbishment. And I can use Unit 2, which is our first uh, reactor that we refurbished. Uh, when it came back online after refurbishment, it ran for something over 500 days continuously uh, the moment it came back online. And so this shows the, the rigor, the quality, um, you know, the execution and, and, and how successful this has been. But uh, essentially, you have these large components. They need to be replaced. 
they get taken out, new ones get put in, and the reactor is turned back on and runs for another 30 years. Hmm. That's interesting. So maybe we can broaden out a little bit to talk about the the supply chains around nuclear, because I'm, I'm curious about that. And you touched on it a little bit earlier, talking about how a lot of this stuff is sourced in Canada that's needed to actually run these facilities. Um, and I remember when we were touring the plant in Pickering, you were talking about how Armprior near Ottawa has become a hub for a very specific component of uh, nuclear plants. Maybe you can just talk about that made in Canada supply chain and then uh, some of these you know, specific things which people might not think about that are, are made here and uh, part of these local economies in different communities. Yeah, so the, the, the Southern Ontario or Ontario supply chain that supports uh, nuclear uh, is, is, is really fantastic. It's a great story. And uh, I mean, across Canada, the Canadian Nuclear Association estimates there's over 70,000 uh, jobs that support the nuclear industry. And so you've got uh, a variety of components that are highly specialized um, that support the can-do facilities, and they're and they they're made uh, all over the place. And as you mentioned, Arm Prior, you know, every pressure tube for can-do reactors has been made uh, in Arm Prior, even worldwide. And some of the tubing for uranium fuel bundles is made at another facility in Arm Prior. You've got uh, large facilities in Coburg, Port Hope, uh, Cambridge, all through the GTA um, that all you know feed into the the nuclear supply chain. And especially with this refurbishment right now, this is generating a ton of, uh, you know, economic activity uh, in Ontario and, and abroad. And uh, it's great that so much of these components uh, come from Canada. And I talk about that energy security piece. Uh, again, when you can go back to the raw uranium coming from Saskatchewan, uh, this is really a, a Canadian-based uh, supply chain. Uh, it supports a lot of high, well-paying jobs. Um, and uh, they've been reliable, been around for many decades. And when we talk about new nuclear, um, you know, it's just only going to build uh, upon that. And and given um, the refurbishments uh, and that the supply chain is 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 humming along right now, you know, we're well positioned for new nuclear f- or future refurbishments of of Pickering. Um, and so I myself uh, worked in supply chain for many many years. I worked at uh, a variety of facilities throughout. Uh, the uh, the province and that helped you know build my career everything from a co-op student right up to where i am now and uh mm-hmm. as i said it's it there's a ton of diversity diverse jobs uh different skill sets and uh and all across the province and, and beyond uh that support our nuclear fleet here in ontario yeah it was striking to me when we were going through pickering the diversity just in demographic of the people who were working there like there was older people there was very young people who looked like they were just like straight out of university uh it was interesting to see how many people actually work in a nuclear plant so between uh pickering and darlington we have about five thousand staff uh not all at once because it runs 24 7 uh there's about three thousand people at darlington and two thousand people at pickering maybe we can talk about some of the new nuclear and i also want to talk about the technology a little bit um smrs for sure but before we get into that i'm curious uh is the technology that we are building with now uh and that's going into some of these refurbishment pro- projects is it the same tech that we were using when we built these plants 40 50 years ago 
or have there been innovations in on the technology side that have made nuclear cheaper, better, et cetera? So there's been uh, some innovations. The uh, the major components that have been replaced in refurbishment are essentially one to one. There are some um, improved alloys that we've we've seen improvements on that may be incorporated into some of these components for a longer life or better performance. Um, and we have seen some um, components or or systems being upgraded or replaced with modern technology. But for the most part, these systems have been running for for decades. And, you know, they are, they're running as, as, uh, reliably as they ever have, as I mentioned before. And so we're not seeing major, uh, overhauls on a lot of these things, but there are, there are some pieces, um, some of the biggest innovation has come through in the robotic tooling needed for refurbishment. Um, these are, uh, highly sophisticated, um, remote operated machines that have been made here in Ontario and they go in and, and do a lot of the refurbishment work uh, or the extraction mm. work completely remotely uh, as well as there's been some really uh, advanced inspection systems that have been developed. Uh, one of the previous companies I worked for, we developed uh, an inspection system for Bruce Power that uh, is called Brims and uh, you know, a very modern technology that goes in and allows us to do quicker, faster inspections um, and, you know, better results, more, uh, more opportunities to go in and, and do this work. So, um, there are, there are some innovations there, but as we look into SMRs, this is where we can really apply, um, more modern technologies as these, these designs are maturing now, as opposed to uh, a few decades ago and have the opportunity to, uh, add some very, uh, innovative additional benefits, um, into newer, uh, nuclear technologies. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about the SMRs. What are they, and you know, what? Why are they suddenly something that people are interested in? So SMRs are essentially a class of nuclear reactors. These are uh, predominantly three hundred megawatts or less. The units we see, um, or or Bruce, or you know, eight hundred, nine hundred megawatts plus. And so these are just a, a class of reactor. There's not just one type of SMR. There's multiple types. And so at uh, Darlington, we're looking at building a G Hitachi uh, BWRX 300. So it's a 300 megawatt uh, SMR. And the advantage of these is that um, they can be replicated uh, many, many times. And so you start to have more factory built components or modules, the M and, and, and SMR. And this reduces your construction timeline. Uh, and allows you to, uh, as I said, replicate parts from the same one or the same reactor over and over and over again. And uh, there's an advantage in that. There's also, when you look at uh, decentralized grids, not every grid can uh, handle 1,000 megawatt uh, reactors being placed into the grid. And a province like Saskatchewan mm -hmm. uh, that has a growing grid, adding 300 megawatts at a time is actually a perfect fit for them as their, as their grid expands. They're not relying on just one unit, um, and the the entry cost is is substantially lower than a, a large uh, scale nuclear build. Uh, lastly, when we look at um, uh, so a place like Darlington, you're, you're building this major site uh, with a lot of infrastructure and uh, many units. Where SMRs, you can build one at a time and you can scale. And so you build your first one, and as your grid grows or your demand grows, you can build the second, you can build the third, you can build the fourth, uh, and it's really exciting. SMRs also can get 
very tiny. So there's also micromodular reactors, which are uh, in the five to 40 megawatt range. And these are well suited for Northern communities or mines, off-grid mines. And uh, they are um, much smaller. And we're actually uh, in a joint venture with Global Force Power uh, that we uh, have a, a JV with USNC. And so we're building a demonstration unit of that reactor at Chalk River. Uh, that is uh, planned to, to come online later this decade. And then the other piece of SMRs uh, is what we call advanced reactors. And these are well-suited for industrial applications. And these are about 100 megawatts each. And what these are well-suited for is producing high amounts of steam uh, and energy for industrial applications. And we talked about earlier in this conversation about decarbonizing the grid. Uh, we also need to decarbonize industry. And so these, these smaller SMRs that produce high heat are fantastic for steel, cement, oil sands, uh, petrochemical, these really hard to decarbonize uh, industries that we all rely on. Uh, SMRs could be placed at these industrial facilities and, and decarbonize them. Are there any SMRs online right now? Not necessarily in Ontario, but just anywhere in the world. So if you look at what an SMR is by definition, we've been running as a world have been running SMRs for decades. Uh, there's many naval fleets of aircraft carriers and submarines that run on mini modular reactors. Those are SMRs by by definition. Right. Right. By by that definition, though, if there is there an SMR that's in place on grid powering community, I would say no. But one thing to, that's really important to highlight is that when we look at the technology that we're building at uh, Darlington, which is the BWRX 300, the BWR is a boiling water reactor and X is 10, standing for the 10th iteration of that design. There's very large boiling water reactors that are in existence in the world that have been running for decades. And this is just a scaled down version of that. So while uh, I sit here today and say there's no BWRX 300 online right now, this is not a, a new idea. This is built on a robust design and it's just a scaled down version. So this isn't a new technology. This is something that exists and we're just scaling it down. Right. Where would you expect to see the first ones come online that are connected to a grid, you know, outside of the submarines, aircraft carriers, that sort of things? What's sort of furthest along in the pipeline? So fortunately, uh, it's OPG. We are the world leader uh, in this technology. Uh, we are scheduled to have our first unit online uh, by 2029. And we also have been given the opportunity to build three more at our Darlington site. So we have potentially up to four BWRX 300s coming online by the mid 2030s. But ever since we announced that we are going with this technology and we've started this project, uh, the world has been watching. I would say on a weekly basis, we either have a, a another province, uh, an international jurisdiction, international companies coming to Darlington to see what we're doing. They put boots on the ground to step in the dirt to say, you know, this is actually being built. Uh, if I took you there today, you mm. would see this is a full-fledged construction project. This is this is real. This is happening, and NLPG is uh, the world leader, and we're well poised to to leverage that first of a kind um, experience and and create opportunities for OPG in Ontario and other. Is there a an opportunity here to uh, export this technology? Like, is this something that could become uh, a, a product that's made in Ontario down the road if we're the first ones deploying it? Yeah, I'll use the example uh, of an organization in Cambridge called BWXT, which uh, has the uh, opportunity 
to provide the reactor pressure vessels to Poland. There was an announcement uh, about a year and a half ago where this is upwards of a billion dollar contract for them to produce these uh, large components uh, in Cambridge, Ontario and ship them to Poland. That's just one example. Um, as, as a company in Ontario develops uh, the supply chain and the tooling to make these components, because they're modular, um, they can be shipped out worldwide. They can go on rail cars, trucks, boats, wherever, and they can be shipped to anyone. And, and that's where it's important to make sure that the, the design is replicated. And, and part of that is uh, an agreement that we have signed with a few other utilities, Tennessee Valley Authority, Synthos uh, Green Energy in Poland, and Giatachi, the, uh, the technology designer, uh, in a technical collaboration agreement. And what this ensures is that the same design is constructed at all of these sites. And this is going to ensure that we have the ability to build modules anywhere in the world to supply them to any one of these reactors. If we need to train on one and deploy to the other, if we need to gather operational data and provide that to uh, newer reactors or other reactors, we can do that. And so this is why there's such an opportunity for us to go first is that because the same reactor is going to be built in multiple jurisdictions, uh, as Ontario organizations start to produce parts for our reactor, they are you know, very well suited to be uh, the producer of those parts for other reactors. Hmm. Uh, this might be a dumb question, but are there any security risks when it comes to SMRs? Like the security that we went through at Pickering was airport plus. Uh, and if we're building little tiny reactors, can you still, does it make sense to provide that level of security for something that generates way less power than a traditional plant? Uh, not a not a, a silly question by any means. So security requirements are dictated by our uh, federal regulator, the CNSC. And so regardless of the size of reactor or the type of reactor, they dictate the amount of security that's required. And so we would always uh, adhere to those uh, regulations. And so uh, what you're going to see is, uh, you know, despite a smaller size, it's just going to be just as secure, just as safe, the same kind of rigor put into it. Um, whether it's on an existing nuclear site or a new nuclear site, uh, we will you know, follow the regulations uh, required by the CNSC. When you when they become smaller, and this is why I said maybe it's a dumb question. When the reactor becomes smaller, does it become less of a security challenge? I think we can all sort of intuitively understand why you need really tight security at these big nuclear plants. If you're deploying something that only generates uh, 50 megawatts of power for a factory or something, does that just become less dangerous overall than a larger nuclear plant? So. I don't want to say it's less dangerous because all all nuclear plants are are safe. Um, there's inherent risks to any kind of energy generation. Um, sure. But in, in in this case here, uh, one of the advantages to SMRs uh, it being you know modern designs or adapting uh, designs to modern is that there are more inherent safety features built into them, which allow less operators uh, to be on site at any given time. And so when you have less mm-hmm. people on a reactor uh, property, uh, you may need you know less. We talk about three thousand people going into Darlington each day. You think about the 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 size of the security uh, force and system that needs to process that many people. You have you have less people yeah. going into an SMR, but it's just as safe. It's just as secure. Um, as I mentioned, there are some uh, newer safety features in SMRs, but that doesn't mean that the existing nuclear facilities are unsafe. 
It's just that there's there's more advanced opportunities here to to make things safer. And that's one great thing about right. um, the the nuclear industry is that we're continuously looking at making things uh, safer. We use a term called defense in depth, where we have multiple, multiple levels of, of security or safety. And so, uh, yeah, to, to kind of hone in on the question there, they're smaller, so you need less people to run them. Uh, so, uh, you know, you may not have as many people going through security each day, but the this, the level of security and the rigor of security will, will remain the same. Right. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting as it's, you know, at Pickering, it was such a, it was so much activity going on. And I, I've never been in a more uh, tightly secured facility. So, I, you know, does that, do you get an economy of scale uh, if you make that bigger and do you get challenges if you make it smaller? But it sounds like, you know, fewer people means, you know, you can maintain the same level of security without having necessarily the same size infrastructure for it as a place like Pickering. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess just to close it off here, you know, we talked a little bit about the decarbonization challenge at the beginning. If Ontario wanted to decarbonize the grid, get off of natural gas, how much new nuclear would it need to build to do that? Let's say everything remains the same with regards to wind and solar, just for the purposes of this thought experiment. Uh, does Would that involve building a new nuclear plant? Could you do it with what we have plus a couple SMRs? What would that sort of have to look like if we actually wanted to pursue that? Yeah, so it, um, we've made great strides in our grid as it is. Um, we have a fairly clean grid overall because we got off coal uh, and the last coal plant shut down in 2014. And uh, their whole reason why we were able to get off coal was because of nuclear. Um, and so we've already, we've already done this once. And so now when we looked at the future to say, okay, well, how do we, how do we continue to decarbonize and have reliable energy in Ontario and, and nuclear is, is a great, uh, option for that. And so if we, if we use the ISO report as a, as a starting place for that, uh, you know, they estimate 18,000 megawatts. And if we look at, um, the amount of megawatts that are being produced per, uh, can do unit right now in Ontario at, at Bruce and, and they're less than a thousand megawatts, but let's just say they're a thousand megawatts. Uh, so that's 18 more reactors. We currently have 18 units running in Ontario. We need another 18. And so this is a large, uh, opportunity for nuclear. Now we're going to be building four SMRs at Darlington. We're going to be looking at refurbishing Pickering. Uh, Bruce Power has a, a, an announcement uh, not too long ago that has them looking at adding up to 4,800 megawatts at their site. And so when you you add those up, you start to chip out, you know, of that 18,000 megawatts, we're already starting, we're already well on our way. Uh, but you're, we do have to build new. Um, we do have to build on, on new sites, but, um, you know, it's going to be probably a combination of SMRs and large given the amount of electricity that's needed. Um, but it, uh, yeah, yet to be determined exactly when and where, but we know that the 2050 goal of net zero requires a huge amount of, of nuclear and, um, and it's an exciting time to, to be involved in nuclear, uh, myself growing up in Ontario, I, I was a kid with asthma and suffered from, uh, you know, smog days. You may recall that yourself, uh, we'd have smog warnings yeah, on a absolutely. regular basis. Mm -hmm. Those have disappeared since we've got enough coal, and we could we did that because of nuclear. 
And so it's exciting uh, to be a part of ensuring that we continue to have clean air here in Ontario. And as I talked about earlier in our conversation, being the, the world leaders in this space, uh, being able to uh, give that opportunity to other provinces or other jurisdictions that may not have the opportunity right now to do it is super exciting. Uh, you know, for myself, my colleagues, and anyone else in the industry, uh, this is a really great place to be. And it's a really exciting, uh, you know, horizon ahead of us for new nuclear. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Riley, thanks for coming on and talking about some of the uh, exciting things going on in, in, Ontario, in nuclear in Ontario. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for taking the interest in OPG and nuclear. And I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the tour of Pickering. All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can get more episodes like it by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. Also subscribe to our daily business newsletter at readthepeak.com. And if you have an extra minute to spare, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. It really helps us grow the show. We'll see you again next week.